There's a received opinion, much written about in the 20th century, that Robert Schumann's orchestral music was deficient in one crucial aspect. He couldn't orchestrate. His orchestral writing is too thick, and everything's always doubled up. Well, in some respects, that's true. He was a safety-first orchestrator. He liked to make sure that everything would hang together, largely because he wasn't a very good conductor. His orchestra in Düsseldorf in the late 1840s would have attested to this. It didn't last long in the post. Here's what I mean. This is an example of the late, rather cautious Schumann. The introduction to his Symphony Number、no. Four in D Minor, Opus 120. <laughs> BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Douglas Boyd, in the rather imposing introduction to the Fourth Symphony. Did you hear that everything's neatly doubled up? A full tutti sound, strings and woodwind playing the same notes. It sounds impressive, but there's not much relief from the one blended colour of the full band. Now, if you take away some of the woodwind, especially the higher octaves, and use them in the brass more sparingly, then thin out the strings a bit. This is what the same music sounds like. Thank、you
Much better, worse, or just different? The music's the same, but there's a little more light and air in the sound, and more relief for the ear. Well, the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra weren't making that example up. It comes from the original version of Schumann's Symphony Number、no. Four, which he completed in 1841. It's the version which Schumann's great friend Brahms always preferred, but it's not the version which Schumann published. 1841 was Schumann's year of orchestral music. After all, the piano music of the 1830s and the outpouring of songs in 1840, his new wife Clara thought he ought to prove himself as a composer of symphonies. Schumann once wrote that after Beethoven's death, composers were obligated to create the ideal of a modern symphony to a new standard. Perhaps the flurry of orchestral music he composed in 1841 was a first stab at living up to that ideal. Certainly, what emerged was amongst the most adventurous orchestral music of the time, every bit as radical as his songs and piano music. In double-quick time, he composed the Spring Symphony, then two rather unusual works: the Overture, Scherzo, and Finale, a symphony without slow movements, really, and this D minor work, which he first entitled Symphonic Fantasy. The orchestration was sparing, like a big chamber group a lot of the time, very classical and clean. He wrote it for the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra, about 50 players, with a relatively small string section, slightly smaller in fact than the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra in the programme today. And the music was even more radical. Schumann joined the four movements together to form a single span, and then used the same material in each one. Schumann's great friend in music, Felix Mendelssohn, liked to join his movements together. Probably to stop the audience interrupting the flow with their applause, and he could say that Beethoven had also been there before, making the smallest, most concentrated ideas the basis for everything, as in his Fifth Symphony. But here, in his Fourth Symphony, Schumann does it consciously. There's another name to add to the mix here, perhaps Franz Schubert. His music was just becoming more widely known, and Schumann had become a great fan. He was a huge admirer. Of Schubert's Wanderer Fantasy, twenty-minute piano work, which is also laid out in four interconnected movements. Schumann really did think of the Fourth Symphony as a single span. So today I thought we might explore how adventurous he really was. 
by finding out how the early 1841 version was put together, and along the way, finding out how different this original version is from the one which has come down to us as Opus 120. It's a very compact piece, lasting about 24 minutes, shorter than most of the later symphonies of Haydn and Mozart, and, as I've said, the four movements flow together. The first is a sort of sonata form, then comes a simple romance. The third movement picks up without a break, and we hear the trio section twice, which is an idea he borrowed straight from Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. The Beethoven legacy lives on also in the way Schumann links the scherzo and finale by some atmospheric bridging material. Let's see first how he provides that musical continuity. Here are the opening bars again. Listen out for the inner parts, a gentle flowing melody on strings and bassoons. <laughs> That same undulating tune appears twice more, the first a pretty straight reprise but transposed from D minor to A minor, in the middle of the Romanza, the second movement. That's quite clearly the same music. Elsewhere, he makes the journey of that tune less obvious. The scherzo begins with something that sounds new, a very simple theme outlining a D minor triad, something Beethoven might have done. <laughs> The other big idea is just a little cell, like a germ motif that reproduces itself throughout the piece. Here it is, slowed down as it appears at the start of the first movement allegro on the first violins. That's all it is. Not a world away from the opening melody either, is it? And Schumann uses it obsessively, worries at it like a dog with a bone, you might say. His wife Clara, who'd encouraged him to take on big orchestral works, wrote to Brahms and to Schumann's publishers in terms that might make us think that she had proprietorial rights over the piece. 
Some commentators have indeed suggested that this little motif might represent Clara herself. Whatever the truth of that, it does generate a lot of the musical momentum, and between this and the opening, nearly all of the themes. For example, if you fill in the gap at the start, slow it down and add in some rhythmic interest, and transpose bits of it, it turns into the elegant oboe and cello theme which starts the romanza. There are more connections to explore when we come to look at the finale shortly. But back to Clara's theme at the start of the Allegro in the first movement. It propels the music forward with great vitality at the start of the Allegro exposition, the first subject. first subject with a full stop with classical certainty then comes the bridge passage the Clara cell is working hard to change the key from D minor to F major but when the new brighter key is established Schumann doesn't introduce any new material but goes on with further elaborations So, we've had the first subject and then a second subject, all with the same building blocks, no contrasting material. As I said, Haydn liked to do that, but what happens in the development section, the working out of ideas in a classical symphony, is very different from Haydn, Beethoven, Mendelssohn or anyone else. He announces that something new is about to happen with a bare octave in a remote key. Clara's germ cell then runs up and down the orchestra. It's joined by a new long, short, short pulse, the same as Schubert's in his Wanderer fantasy, and out of it emerges something new on just a bass trombone. final version he gives it to the trombones in octaves. Here it creeps in unsuspected. But as it grows it seems to take on more importance. The new pulse becomes a jagged insistent stab and two brand new ideas are formed. first is heroic, masculine, forthright, with Clara's theme echoing. 
much longer in contour, a more shapely, yielding melody. So, here in the development section, Schumann has evolved or grown new material, which then dominates the movement. Where there wasn't any real conflict or tension of themes before, now we have two very different ideas which fight with the Clara theme for supremacy. little motif is Clara, might the other themes, the one heroic and the other more pliant, represent Schumann himself, the extrovert and introvert sides of his personality, which is so often reflected in his piano music. It's this development section, rather than the exposition, which seems to dictate the overall shape and balance of the Fourth Symphony, because the new themes eventually take over, and it really is a symphonic revolution. Schumann keeps moving the music onto new territory. There isn't any recapitulation of the original ideas. And at the climax of the movement, he doesn't return to the earlier material, but makes a grand gesture with the new material, Schumann if you like, followed by a forceful version of the Clara music. is very abrupt, isn't it? The music simply stops. Sounds more like a cut-off, an interruption, than a resolution. And we're whisked straight off into a completely different musical world. The gentle lilt of the Romanza.
One of the magical things about the original version of Schumann's Fourth Symphony is how clear everything sounds. Schumann makes sure that we can hear every instrument. Nothing is obscured by the accretions of detail, but also he makes the transitions between ideas and movements crystal clear. And I hope we're becoming aware as we delve into the detail how the sudden changes of mood and emotion are reflected in the shifts of orchestral colour. We've already heard how the music of the Romanza and Scherzo has evolved out of the main ideas. As you'll hear in the complete performance later on, they're like character pieces in style. The Romanza, wistful and almost pensive. The Scherzo, more rugged and assertive. But I'd like to move on to what is, for me, one of the magical moments in the piece. The way the Scherzo fades out and the finale fades in to sort of pick up where the first movement left off. We're in Beethoven territory here. Think of the Fifth Symphony or the Emperor Concerto. Or in our own times, think of the way a film or TV director might dissolve from one scene to another. We'll pick up the action as the second trio section draws to an end. First, the rhythmic focus loses its definition. The harmonies and themes fade out. Then, as if in the distance, we hear snatches of the Clara motif followed by a hint of the heroic theme. Gradually they come into focus. Until in a blaze of orchestral tootie they join forces to form the bright, confident music at the start of the finale.
that is one of the most exciting moments in the score, the sudden burst of activity from the orchestra. When he came to revise the music later in the 1840s, Schumann rather smoothed things out. We hear more of the Clara cell and much more of the heroic theme, but less of the scurrying about. And most clearly of all, he doesn't run on continuously, but stops on a huge anticipatory pause before taking a slightly different tack at the start of the finale proper. to decide which version you like best, but in both cases, as you'll have gathered, the themes have morphed yet again. In this final incarnation, it's though Schumann has combined the essence of the two strands, what I've called the Clara theme and the heroic theme, which you might just as well call Robert's theme, combined them into a single entity. The progress of the theme dum-de-dum-dum is really clear throughout. It's just as obsessive in its way as the Clara theme was in the first movement. But now it's in the major key, bright and brilliant D major. And just as in the first movement, Schumann plays fast and loose with the conventions of sonata form. There's a similar feeling of growth, of pace and evolution. So, no hanging around for the niceties of formal balance. In a way, he doesn't need to, because if you think about it, by enabling his two themes to join hands, as it were, in the finale, Schumann's providing a balance over the whole span of the work to the recapless first movement. You could, in a way, think of the first movement as an exposition in itself. The conflict of two ideas, Clara, Robert, feminine, masculine, lyrical, heroic. And then the finale as their resolution, the merging into a procession of joyous events. As soon as the Allegro picks up speed, we're aware that the ideas simply press forward, with questions and answers growing effortlessly into another new tune. <laughs> Thank you. 
open section, Schumann tries his hand at a fugue, which soon fragments to make way for a familiar-sounding gesture from the horns. just as in the first movement, there isn't a literal recap. Schumann gives us the new tune again, but it's more amply orchestrated. hesitation, what sounds like fresh material, but which is in reality yet another transformation of the ideas which have by now become almost second nature to us. It's the last of the composer's visits to the primary material that was the very opening of the work and which has provided the springboard for all the music in this imaginative, resourceful and original take on the symphony. Not until Sibelius was to write his Symphony No. 7 in the 1920s 
was a composer prepared to take on the symphonic mantle of Beethoven so radically and dare to produce a single span of invention that would break the mould in such a distinctive and personal way. Personal also, perhaps, in the extent to which the relationship between the composer and his young, strong wife is enshrined within it. Certainly the themes display the same kind of contrasts as we find in some of his piano pieces, where the connections between the music and their relationship are pretty well documented. When he finished the piece, Schumann gave the manuscript to Clara as a present. So, when he tried to get this original version published, it was Clara who put her foot down and prevented it. Was it too personal a testament for her to see in public? Or was she simply concerned about material things like her rights to the work? Whatever her motives were, this first version, for all its remarkable qualities and originality of design, didn't appear in print for over a hundred years. We'll hear now, in a performance specially recorded for today's Discovering Music, the original 1841 version of Schumann's Symphony No. 4, performed by the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Douglas Boyd. <laughs> 